My name is Humble Gray, and I am a Mississippi farmer. Well, my young friend Hank's five-year-old daughter, little Ambrosia, it seems she's caught the acting bug. See, the Episcopal Church in Zare County, St. Something or Other, they've started up a little theater group. I don't have much truck with Episcopalians myself. For one thing, the name is too hard to spell. If I had to start a letter, Dear Episcopalians, I'd sprain my fingers. Of course, I don't have much truck with Hebrews either, and Jew is real easy to spell. I guess I just have a bone or two to pick with this sea mice, what with them killing Jesus and all. But be that as it may, this church group was promising to mount a family show full of good Christian values, specifically a musical entertainment based on that stalwart of the funny pages, Little Orphan Annie. That's right, the youngin' with the oval eyes who always landed in a peck of trouble. They made a whole two-hour extravaganza of her adventures filled with singing and dancing and all sorts of carrying on. Except they don't call the show Little Orphan Annie. They just shortened it to Annie. I don't know why. Maybe it's too hard for actors to remember a title with three whole words in it. Little what what? No, let's just call it Annie. I expect that's how it went. But whatever, word got round Ambrosia's kindergarten that the church was looking for little girls to stand before the footlights that they might portray various and sundry ragamuffins in this theatrical endeavor. So before you knew it, Ambrosia was badgering her folks to let her what you call audition. Now, if it were me, the answer would have been a big fat no that my darling daughter was not going to tread the boards, as they say, and make a spectacle of herself. And she especially wasn't going to be tarted up with powders and paints for the delectation of a bunch of strangers. No sir, no siree, no siree, bub. But Hank and his better half Margie, well, they've been known to indulge the girl. So they took her to St. Hoosets, and oh my, wasn't there a crowd. The church auditorium was overflowing with what must have been children from three counties. In fact, you wouldn't credit there were that many local moppets, so I'm guessing they'd bust some in from Louisiana, I don't know. All Hank could say it was wall-to-wall pigtails, all of them chattering like chipmunks. Meantime, their mamas and daddies, they were looking desperately for somebody in charge. Finally, this fellow wearing what we call an ice cream suit appeared. That's right, an ice cream suit, white slacks and jackets so as he looked cool and collected on this hot day in that stuffy auditorium. First off, he identifies himself as Mr. Fry, who, it turns out, was not only the church choir master, but also, he informs one and all, the play director. And it's no wonder, too, because he revealed a natural talent for such, having directed everybody right off to be seated even lined up the overflow from Narthex to Nave where they could patiently wait their turn. Then the church organist, 87 years young and answering to the name of Mrs. Buddy, took her place at the upright piano. There, seated on an old poplar wood stool, she held her fingers at the ready as Mr. Fry called up the first young'un. "'What would you like to sing, darling?' says Mr. Fry. 
and the little girl in a tiny voice says, I want to sing a song called Castle on a Cloud. Do you know that one, Mrs. Buddy? asks Mr. Fry. I am familiar, says she, for it is that which the oppressed baby Cosette performs in the popular stage musical Les Miserables. Well, as Mrs. Buddy starts a play and this child starts a singing, weaving a tale of her cloud castle and how she visits it in dreamland and everybody there is nice. Charming enough ditty, even when sung off-key, which it was. Then Mr. Fry thanked the girl and called up the next one. All right, dear, says he. What will you be singing? And the tot says, I will be singing Castle on a Cloud. Oh, says Mr. Fry, that's fine. Two castles on a cloud. Nothing wrong with that. So the audience was treated to a second rendition of the song, after which Mr. Fry thanked her and scooted her off. Then girl number three ascended the stage. What can we play for you? asked Mr. Fry. Castle on a cloud, says she. Goodness, says Mr. Fry. We seem to have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to that little number. The young'un sang much like the other two, her pitch being, one might say, eccentric, and made way for the fourth auditioner. Tell me what you'd like to sing, says Mr. Fry. Castle on a cloud, says she. And so did the fifth, the sixth, the seventh little girl, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, and so on ad infinitum, till finally Mr. Fry turned to the crowd and said, Are any of you idiot? I, I mean, are any of you children not singing Castle on a Cloud? Because right now I'd pay cash money to hear anything but. This was met by silence from all 200 young'uns. That is, until little Ambrosia stood on her chair, drew a deep breath, and started singing. And the number she performed? Nothing less than the Itsy Bitsy Spider, complete with hand movements. Impressive ones, too, so that you in fact really believed an arachnid was crawling up the water spout. Mrs. Buddy accompanied her enthusiastically on the upright, so delighted to eschew those castles and clouds she added embellishments to the melody. Thank you, you little godsend, cried Mr. Fry, and welcome to the show. So it was that Ambrosia was assigned to portray Molly, the tiniest resident of a decaying New York City orphanage. She's set to make her stage debut in just four weeks, says Hank, as we sat in Zeb's barber shop. I'm sorry to hear that, says I. No, no, Farmer Gray, says Hank. It's a good thing. Oh, says I. Okay, then, I guess. You are coming, aren't you, says Hank? Ambrosia would be heartbroken if you weren't there to see her premiere. Well, Hank, says I, you know my feelings about play acting. I believe it profits a child more to learn the good book than to dance the hoochie-coo on the wicked stage. Oh, it's not like that at all, says Hank. In fact, Mr. Fry, he claims he's got a whole new concept for the show, that this is going to be an Annie unlike any Annie you ever saw. Isn't that something? Well, says I, since I've never seen it, you could set the thing on Mars, I'd take it at face value. But you'll come, says Hank. If little Ambrosia has her heart set on my attendance, says I, then I shall indulge her. Well, folks, I'm nothing if not true to my word, and that's a fact. So four weeks later, I found myself sitting in that Episcopalian auditorium, squeezed in among the sacramentalists. Still, I wasn't there to judge. You want to take communion the wrong way? That's between you and God. A punishing, angry God. Yes, sir. 
Anyway, Hank and Margie waved to me from the front row, and then Hank came over and said, My heart's beating so fast you'd think it was me fixin' to go on stage. Why is that, says I. Do you also fear that her thespic cavorting might shame her before Jesus? Uh, no, says Hank. I was afraid she might forget a line or something. Oh, says I. I suppose that's a concern as well. Then Mr. Fry appeared from behind the curtain. He was all dapper, too, in a tan seer sucker, batwing tie, and shiny brown oxfords. Mighty shiny, I'll add. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, says he, to tonight's presentation of a classic American musical. The show Annie has been delighting audiences for almost 45 years as a staple not only of Broadway, but of countless regional and community theaters. And with each performance, playgoers have been sent home with a vital message of hope. Well, that is, at least until now. A slight murmur swept through the crowd as Mr. Fry continued, because tonight you will see a very different Annie, harder, tougher, with no place for the optimistic little Moppet who once sang her way into your hearts with her goodwill and determination. Witness instead an Annie stripped of its artifice, exposing the dark and stinking soul pulsing beneath. The murmuring grew louder, but Mr. Fry, he pressed on, we ask you now, says he, to join us on a journey of despair through Depression-era America, a land of desperation and disease, of wretchedness and starvation, a hell on earth where goodness dies and every act of madness is etched on the withered faces of innocent children. My dear friends, I give you Annie. And just before exiting, he added in somber tones, don't forget, the ladies' auxiliary will be holding a bake sale at intermission. Thank you. With that, he disappeared into the wings and the curtain was drawn open. Now, I won't delve into what I saw on stage that night. I'll only read you the cease and desist letter that arrived a few days later in Mr. Fry's mailbox. Hank got a copy and passed it on to me by way of explanation for the mystifying events that unfolded on that proscenium. It says here, it says, from the estate of Mr. Thomas E. Meehan. Thomas E. Meehan, apparently that's the fellow who wrote the play, but he passed a few years back, so this was from his executor, which I guess in legal terms is the gentleman who gets mad at stuff Mr. Meehan can't get mad at himself, since he's with Jesus. Anyway, it says, from the estate of Mr. Thomas E. Meehan, sir... It has come to our attention that you are currently staging a production of the musical Annie. We have further been notified that said production veers considerably from the standard book. We hereby inform you that unless you correct the following aspects of this presentation, we will be forced to take legal action against the Episcopal Diocese of Mississippi. Point number one. The children of the Municipal Girls' Orphanage are not to sport makeup, suggesting the presence of welts, bruises, or the disfiguring skin lesions of Pemphicus vulgaris. Their faces may appear smudged, but not diseased. Point number two. The song Tomorrow is to be performed brightly as a message of optimism and uplift. It is not to be sung as a dirge over the dead body of the dog Sandy. Which brings us to point number three. The dog Sandy is not to die. He is to be hale and healthy throughout the show and not meet his end halfway through Act One under the wheels of Mr. Bundle's laundry truck. 
We cannot stress this enough. Point number four. Miss Hannigan is a comic villain with a taste for gin, not a part-time prostitute suffering from tertiary syphilitic dementia. See point number one. Point number five. Oliver Warbucks has not acquired his vast wealth by selling arms to Hitler, nor does his secretary Grace, when she arrives at the orphanage to pick up a little girl, specify no Jews. Point number six. The orphans Pepper, Tessie, and Duffy do not die of tuberculosis. In fact, they do not die of anything. As with Sandy, they are quite alive and healthy at the conclusion of the play. Point number seven. At the finale, Annie refers to Oliver as Daddy Warbucks, not Big Daddy Warbucks. The latter carries a disturbing and indecent connotation that has no place in a family show. Anyway, folks, there are about 20 more of these, and apparently Mr. Fry, he was not very obliging, since he ranted to Mrs. Buddy about his artistic vision and how it would not be compromised. Not ever, no sir, no way. And she carried that message to their what you call bishop, who wasn't having such mulishness, especially with the threat of a lawsuit hanging over the diocese. The upshot is Mr. Fry was fired as director and as choir master to boot. And for good measure, they shut down not only the play, but the entire theater program, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. Apparently, Mrs. Buddy is handling choir master chores these days, which, rumor has it, she always coveted anyway. Might even be she who blabbed to Mr. Meehan's estate, but I can't guess. For the ways of the Episcopalian, they are strange to me. Oh, and for those who are curious, the star of my little story, Little Ambrosia, she acquitted herself very well in that ill-fated Annie. The tot was quite charming, in fact, even with all those painted-on blisters and scars. Of course, I didn't tell her I was impressed, because the last thing I desire is to encourage her in this play-acting endeavor. Still, I think she could tell, because when she came out of the dressing room, I... I looked at her slantendicular and then busted into a big smile. Couldn't help it, and, and besides, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Yes, sir. Play me out, Zeke. <laughs>